Welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is your host, D.B. Spitzer. We are in week two of the collected works of Poe, Edgar Allan Poe. And uh, yeah, so we're going to have that going on. And here's the thing. It's all going to drop on Tuesday. All of it. Black Clock Audio Tales drops on Tuesday. It's going to be a week worth of stuff, but it's all going to drop on Tuesday. And I'll step it out on Tuesday. So your podcast player will know what order to play it in instead of trying to play it all at once. So yeah, this is going to be interesting. We're going to see how this works. And let us know if you like it, if you hate it, if you want us to switch any other way, if you want us to do things any other way. And yeah, this is going to be the intro for all week. So thank you so much for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos Black Clock Audio Tales. Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans Holiday Special and Zero Episode Articulate Warbling. Gonna try and come up with some other stuff. Maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe, maybe you have an idea and you want to contact pgttcm.com and contact us there. Or you want to contact us on Facebook at pgttcm.com or Black Clock Audio Tales or we're on, on Facebook, we're People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos Black Clock Audio Tales. And you can always contact Zach from Articulate Warbling by checking out Articulate Warbling. And Dave's got something for Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, but I can't remember the thing for it right now. But hey, uh, I'll let you know once we get closer to episode one coming out on that. As always, this episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. Look cool with a vintage-looking t-shirt from your favorite cult film from the 80s and 90s. Maybe the 70s, too, hey. And what about those bunny slippers? Keeping your feet warm, keeping your feet dry. Well, I mean, don't go walking around in novelty slippers outside. You're going to get your feet wet. What? Stay inside. Stay warm. Watch some cult films. BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com a sponsor of PGTTCM and Black Clock Audio Tales since, I don't know, 2017? Something like that. All right. On with the show, Edgar Allan Poe. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and PGTTCM.com. And, hey, keep the show going. Donate a buck or five to PayPal.com slash... No, PayPal.me slash PGTTCM or going to pgttcm.podbean.com and clicking the patron button and donating something. We'll figure out something in the future for, I don't know, donating more than a dollar, but if you donate a dollar, we'll say your name and contact me so I know that you did it because, I don't know, for some reason I'm not getting messages about that kind of stuff. And if you've donated money and I didn't say your name, message me on Facebook, and I'll say your name, and be like, hey, this person donated money. Anyway, Ed Allan Poe, here we go. Recording by David Lawrence. The Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 2, the Telltale Heart. True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous. I had been and am, 
but why will you say that I am mad? The disease has sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man, and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution. With what foresight. With what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening, so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern, cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, so that it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone, and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man, indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than mine did. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph, to think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were closed fast through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing on it steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern, when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime 
I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was a groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no. It was the low, stifling sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it had welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since that first slight noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim, and it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot out from the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face, or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell I threw open the lantern and leapt into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant I dragged him to the floor and pulled a heavy bed over him. Then I smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. 
but for many minutes the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head, and the arms, and the legs. Then I took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber, and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. Ha <laughs> ha! When I made an end to these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office. And they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues while I myself, in the very wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But, ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness, until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles, in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting, and grated it upon the boards, 
but the noise arose over all and continually increased it grew louder 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled was it possible they heard not almighty god no no they heard they suspected they knew they were making a mockery of my horror this i thought and this i think but anything was better than this agony anything was more tolerable than this derision i could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer i felt that i must scream or die and now again hark louder 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 villains i shriek dissemble no more i admit the deed tear up the planks here here it is the beating of his hideous heart end of the telltale heart recording by david lawrence january 24 2009 in brampton ontario recording by maria tafidis the collected works of edgar allan poe raven edition volume 2 baroness Dicebant me sodales, si sepulcrum amice visitarem, curas mesaliquentulum furelewatas, ebn zayat. Misery is manifold. The wretchedness of earth is multiform. Overreaching the wide horizon as a rainbow, its hues are as various as the hues of the art as distinct to, yet as intimately blended, overreaching the wide horizon as the rainbow. How is it that from beauty I have derived a type of unloveliness, from the covenant of peace, a simile of sorrow? But as in ethics, evil is a consequence of good. So in fact, out of joy is sorrow born. Either the memory of past bliss is the anguish of today, or the agonies which are have their origin in the ecstasy which might have been. My baptism name is Aegeus. That of my family I was not mentioned. Yet there are no towers in the land more time-honored than my gloomy, grey, hereditary halls. Our line has been called a race of visionaries, and in many striking particulars, in the character of the family mansion, in the frescoes of the chief saloon, in the tapestries of the dormitories, in the chiseling of some buttresses in the armory, but more especially in the gallery of antique paintings, in the fashion of a library chamber, and lastly, in the very peculiar nature of the library's contents, there is more than sufficient evidence to warrant the belief. The recollections of my earliest years are connected with that chamber and with its volumes which latter I will say no more. Here died my mother. Herein was I born. But it is mere idleness to say that I had not lived before. 
that a soul has no previous existence. You deny it. Let us not argue the matter. Convinced myself, I seek not to convince. There is, however, a remembrance of aerial forms, of spiritual and meaning eyes, of sounds, musical yet sad, a remembrance which will not be excluded, a memory like a shadow, vague, variable, indefinite, unsteady, and like a shadow, too, in the impossibility of my getting rid of it while the sunlight of my reason shall exist. In that chamber was I born. Thus awaking from the long night of what seemed, but was not, non-entity, at once into the very regions of fairyland, into a palace of imagination, into the wild dominions of monastic thought and erudition. It is not singular that I gazed around me with a startled and ardent eye, that I loitered away my boyhood in books, and dissipated my youth in reverie. But it is singular that as years rolled away, and the noon of manhood found me still in the mansion of my fathers, it is wonderful what stagnation there fell upon the springs of my life. Wonderful how total an inversion took place in the character of my commonest thought. The realities of the world affected me as visions, and as visions only, while the wild ideas of the land and dreams became in turn not the material of my everyday existence, but in very deed, that existence utterly and solely in itself. Berenice and I were cousins, and we grew up together in my paternal halls. Yet differently we grew. I, ill of health and buried in gloom, she, agile, graceful, and overflowing with energy, hers the ramble on the hillside, mine the studies of the cloister, I, living with my own heart, and addicted body and soul to the most intense and painful meditation, she, Roaming carelessly through life, with no thought of the shadows in her path, or the silent flight of the raven-winged hours. Baroness, I call upon her name. Baroness, and from the grey ruins of memory a thousand tumultuous recollections are startled at the sound. Ah, vividly is her image before me now, as in the early days of her light-heartedness and joy. Oh, gorgeous, yet fantastic beauty. Oh, sylph amid the shrubberies of Arnheim. Oh, naiad among its fountains. And then, then all is mystery and terror. And a tale which should not be told. Disease, a fatal disease, fell like the simoon upon a frame. And even while I gazed upon her, the spirit of change swept over her, pervading her mind, her habits, and her character, and in a manner the most subtle and terrible, disturbing even the identity of a person. 
Alas, the destroyer came and went. And the victim, where is she? I knew her not, or knew her no longer, as Berenice. Among the numerous train of maladies superinduced by that fatal and primary one which effected a revolution of so horrible a kind in the moral and physical being of my cousin, may be mentioned as the most distressing and obstinate in its nature, a species of epilepsy not unfrequently terminating in trance itself, trance very nearly resembling positive dissolution, and from which her manner of recovery was in most instances startlingly abrupt. In the meantime, my own disease, or I have been told that I should call it by no other appellation, my own disease then grew rapidly upon me, and assumed finally a monomaniac character of a novel and extraordinary form, hourly and momently gaining vigour, and at length obtaining over me the most incomprehensible ascendancy. This monomania, if I must so term it, consisted in a morbid irritability of those properties of the mind in metaphysical science termed the attentive. It is more than probable that I am not understood, but I fear indeed that it is in no manner possible to convey to the mind of the merely general reader an adequate idea of that nervous intensity of interest with which in my case the powers of meditation, not to speak technically, busied and buried themselves in the contemplation of even the most ordinary objects of the universe. To muse for long, unwearied hours, with my attention riveted to some frivolous device on the margin, or in the typography of a book, to become absorbed for the better part of a summer's day, in a quaint shadow falling aslant upon the tapestry, or upon the floor, to lose myself for an entire night in watching the steady flame of lamp or the embers of a fire, to dream away whole days over the perfume of a flower, to repeat monotonously some common word until the sound, by dint of frequent repetition, seems to convey any idea whatever to the mind. To lose all sense of motion or physical existence by means of absolute bodily quiescence long and obstinately persevered in. Such were a few of the most common and least pernicious vagaries induced by a condition of the mental faculties, not indeed altogether unparalleled, but certainly bidding defiance to anything like analysis or explanation. Yet let me not be misapprehended. The undue, earnest, and morbid attention thus excited by objects in their own nature frivolous must not be confounded in character with that ruminating propensity common to all mankind, more especially indulged in by persons of ardent imagination. It was not even, as might be at first supposed, an extreme condition or exaggeration of such propensity, but primarily and essentially distinct and different. In the one instance, the dreamer or enthusiast 
being interested by an object usually not frivolous, imperceptibly loses sight of this object in a wilderness of deductions and suggestions issuing therefrom, until at the conclusion of a daydream often replete with luxury, he finds the incitamentum, or first cause of his musings, entirely vanished and forgotten. In my case, the primary object was invariably frivolous, although assuming through the medium of my distempered vision a refracted and unreal importance. Few deductions, if any, were made, and those few pertinaciously returning in upon the original object as a center. The meditations were never pleasurable. And at the termination of the reverie, the first cause, so far from being out of sight, had attained that supernaturally exaggerated interest which was the prevailing feature of the disease. In a word, the powers of mind more particularly exercised were with me. As I have said before, they attentive and are, with the daydreamer, the speculative. My books, at this epoch, if they did not actually serve to irritate the disorder, partook, it will be perceived largely, in their imaginative and inconsequential nature, or the characteristic qualities of the disorder itself. I well remember, among others, the treatise of the noble Italian Coelius Segundus Curium, the Amplitudine Beati Regni Dei, Saint Austin's great work, The City of God, and Tertullian's De Carne Christi, in which the paradoxical sentence Mortus est Dei Filius, credible est quia ineptum est, et sepultus resurrexit, certum est quia impossibile est, occupied my undivided time for many weeks of laborious and fruitless investigation. Thus it will appear that, shaken from its balance only by trivial things, my reason bore resemblance to that ocean crag spoken of by Ptolemy Hephaestion, which, steadily resisting the attacks of human violence, and the fiercer fury of the waters and the winds, trembled only to the touch of the flower called Asphnel. And although, to a careless thinker, it might appear a matter beyond doubt, the alteration produced by her unhappy malady in the moral condition of Berenice would afford me many objects for the exercise of that intense and abnormal meditation whose nature I have been at some trouble in explaining. Yet such was not in any degree the case. In the lucid intervals of my infirmity, her calamity indeed gave me pain, and taking deeply to heart the total wreck of a fair and gentle life. I did not fall to ponder frequently and bitterly upon the wonder-working means by which so strange a revolution had been so suddenly brought to pass. But these reflections partook not of the idiosyncrasy of my disease, nor were such as would have occurred under similar circumstances to the ordinary mass of mankind. True to its own character, my disorder revelled in the less important but most startling changes wrought in the physical frame of Berenice, in the singular and most appalling distortion of her personal identity. 
during the brightest days of her unparalleled beauty, most surely I had never loved her. In the strange anomaly of my existence, feelings with me had never been on the heart, and my passions always were of the mind. Through the grey of the early morning, among the trellised shadows of the forest at noonday, and in the silence of my library at night, she had flitted by my eyes, and I had seen her, not as the living and breathing Berenice, but as the Berenice of a dream. Not as a being of the earth, earthy, but as the obstruction of such a being. Not as a thing to admire, but to analyze. Not as an object of love, but as theme of the most abstruse, although desultory, speculation. And now, now I shuddered in her presence, and grew pale at her approach. Yet, bitterly lamenting her fallen and desolate condition, I called to mind that she had loved me long, and in an evil moment I spoke to her of marriage. And at length the period of our nuptials was approaching, when upon an afternoon in the winter of the year, one of those unseasonably warm, calm, and misty days, which are the nurse of the beautiful Halcyon, I sat, and sat, as I thought, alone, in the inner apartment of the library. But uplifting my eyes, I saw that Berenice stood before me. Was it my own excited imagination, or the misty influence of the atmosphere, or the uncertain twilight of the chamber, or the grey draperies which fell around a figure, to cause in it so vacillating and indistinct an outline, I could not tell. She spoke no word, and I, not for worlds, could I have uttered a syllable. An icy chill ran through my frame. A sense of insufferable anxiety oppressed me. A consuming curiosity pervaded my soul. And sinking back upon the chair, I remained for some time breathless and motionless, with my eyes riveted upon a person. Alas, its emaciation was excessive and not one vestige of the former being lurked in any single line of the contour. My burning glances at length fell upon the face. The forehead was high, very pale, and singularly placid, and the once jetty hair fell partially over it, and overshadowed the hollow temples with innumerable ringlets. Now of a vivid yellow, and jarring discordantly in the fantastic character with the reigning melancholy of the countenance. The eyes were lifeless and lustreless and seemingly pupilless, and I shrank 
involuntarily from the glassy stare to the contemplation of the thin and shrunken lips. They parted, and in a smile of peculiar meaning, the teeth of the changed baroness disclosed themselves slowly to my view. Would to God that I had never beheld them, or that having done so I had died. The shutting of a door disturbed me, and looking up, I found that my cousin had departed from the chamber. But from the disordered chamber of my brain had not alas departed, and would not be driven away, the white and ghastly spectrum of the teeth. Not a speck on their surface, not a shade on their enamel, not an indenture in their edges. But what that period of a smile had sufficed to brand it upon my memory. I saw them now even more unequivocally than I beheld them then. The teeth, the teeth, they were here and there and everywhere and visibly and palmably before me. Long, narrow, and excessively white with pale lips writhing about them, as in the very moment of their first terrible development. Then came the full fury of my monomania, and I struggled in vain against its strange and irresistible influence. In the multiplied objects of the external world, I had no thoughts but for the teeth, for these I longed with a frenzy desire. All other matters and all different interests became absorbed in their single contemplation. They, they alone were present to the mental eye, and they, in their sole individuality, became the essence of my mental life. I held them in every light, I turned them in every attitude, I served their characteristics, I dwelt upon the peculiarities, I pondered upon the conformation, amused upon the alteration in their nature. I shuddered as I assigned to them in imagination a sensitive and sentient power, and even when unassisted by the lips, a capability of moral expression. Of Mademoiselle Salle it had been well said que tout ces pas étaient des sentiments and of Berenice, I more seriously believed que toutes ces dents étaient des idées. Des idées. Ah, here was the idiotic thought that destroyed me. Des idées. Ah, therefore it was that I coveted them so madly. I felt that their possession could alone ever restore me to peace and giving me back to reason. And the evening closed in upon me thus. And then the darkness came and tarried and went. And the day again dawned. And the mist of a second night were now gathering around. And still I sat motionless in that solitary room. And still I sat buried in meditation. And still the phantasma of the teeth maintained its terrible ascendancy 
that with the most vivid hideous distinctness it floated about amid the changing lights and shadows of the chamber. At length there broke in upon my dreams a cry as of horror and dismay, and thereunto, after a pause, succeeded the sound of troubled voices, intermingled with many low mournings of sorrow or of pain. I rose from my seat, and throwing open one of the doors of the library, so, standing out in the antechamber, a servant maid, no in tears, who told me that Berenice was no more. She had been seized with epilepsy in the early morning, and now, the closing in of the night, the grave was ready for its tenant, and all the preparations for the burial were completed. I found myself sitting in the library, and again sitting there alone. It seemed that I had newly awakened from a confused and exciting dream. I knew that it was now midnight, and I was well aware that since the setting of the sun, Berenice had been interred. But of a dreary period which intervened, I had no positive, at least, no definite comprehension. Yet its memory was replete with horror, horror more horrible from being vague, and terror more terrible from ambiguity. It was a fearful page in the record of my existence, written all over with dim and hideous and unintelligible recollections. I strive to decipher them, but in vain. Whatever ran on, like the spirit of a departed sound, the shrill and piercing shriek of a female voice seemed to be ringing in my ears. I had done a deed. What was it? I asked myself the question aloud, and the whispering echoes of the chamber answered me. What was it? On the table beside me burned a lamp, and near it lay a little box. It was of no remarkable character, and I had seen it frequently before, for it was the property of the family physician. But how came it there, upon my table, and with a shadow regarding it? These things were in no manner to be accounted for, and my eyes at length dropped to the open pages of a book and to a sentence underscored therein. The words were the singular but simple ones of the poet Ebn Zayat. Dicebant me sodalesti sepulcrum amicui visitarem, curas mes aliquantulum forelevatas. Why then, as I perused them, did the hairs of my head erect themselves on end, and the blood of my body became congealed within my veins? There came a light tap at the library door, and, pale as the tenant of a tomb, a menial entered upon tiptoe. His looks were wild with terror, and he spoke to me in a voice tremulous, husky, and very low. 
What said he? Some broken sentences I heard. He told of a wild cry disturbing the silence of the night, of the gathering together of the household, of a search in the direction of the sound. And then his tones grew thrillingly distinct as he whispered me of a violated grave, of a disfigured body enshrouded and still breathing, still palpitating, still alive. He pointed to garments. They were muddy and clotted with gore. I spoke not, and he took me gently by the hand. It was indented with the impress of human nails. He directed my attention to some object against the wall. I looked at it for some minutes. It was a spade. With a shriek, I bounded to the table and grasped the box that lay upon it. But I could not force it open. With my tremor, it slipped from my hands and fell heavily and burst into pieces. And from it, with a rattling sound, I rolled out some instruments of dental surgery, intermingled with thirty-two small, white, and ivory-looking substances that were scattered to and fro by the floor. End of Baroness Recording by Maria Tafis Recording by Neil Donnelly The Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 2 Chapter 22, Eleonora Sub conservatione forme specifice salva anima Raymond Lully I am come of a race noted for vigor of fancy and ardor of passion. Men have called me mad, but the question is not yet settled. Whether madness is or is not the loftiest intelligence, whether much that is glorious, whether all that is profound, does not spring from disease of thought, from moods of mind exalted at the expense of the general intellect. They who dream by day are cognizant of many things which escape those who dream only by night. In their gray visions they obtain glimpses of eternity and thrill in awakening to find that they have been upon the verge of the great secret. In snatches they learn something of the wisdom which is of good, and more of the mere knowledge which is of evil. They penetrate, however, rudderless or compassless into the vast ocean of the light ineffable, and again like the adventures of the Nubian geographer, Agressi sunt mare tenebarum quid in eo esset exploraturi. We will say, then, that I am mad. I grant, at least, that there are two distinct conditions of my mental existence. 
the condition of a lucid reason not to be disputed, and belonging to the memory of events forming the first epoch of my life, and a condition of shadow and doubt appertaining to the present, and to the recollection of what constitutes the second great era of my being. Therefore what I shall tell of the earlier period believe, and to what I may relate of the later time, give only such credit as may seem due, or doubt it altogether, or, if doubt it ye cannot, then play unto its riddle the Oedipus. She whom I loved in youth, and of whom I now pen calmly and distinctly these remembrances, was the sole daughter of the only sister of my mother long departed. Eleonora was the name of my cousin. We had always dwelled together beneath a tropical sun in the valley of the many-colored grass. No unguided footstep ever came upon that vale, for it lay away up among a range of giant hills that hung beetling around about it, shutting out the sunlight from its sweetest recesses. No path was trodden in its vicinity, and to reach our happy home there was need of putting back with force the foliage of many thousands of forest trees, and of crushing to death the glories of many millions of fragrant flowers. Thus it was that we lived all alone, knowing nothing of the world without the valley, I and my cousin and her mother. From the dim regions beyond the mountains at the upper end of our encircled domain there crept out a narrow and deep river, brighter than all save the eyes of Eleonora, and winding stealthily about in mazy courses it passed away at length through a shadowy gorge, among hills still dimmer than those whence it had issued. We called it the River of Silence, for there seemed to be a hushing influence in its flow. No murmur arose from its bed, and so gently it wandered along that the pearly pebbles upon which we loved to gaze far down within its bosom stirred not at all, but lay in a motionless content, each in its own old station shining on gloriously forever. The margin of the river and of the many dazzling rivulets that glided through devious ways into its channel, as well as the spaces that extended from the margins away down into the depths of the streams until they reached the bed of pebbles at the bottom, these spots, not less than the whole surface of the valley, from the river to the mountains that girdled it in, were carpeted all by a soft green grass, thick, short, perfectly even and vanilla-perfumed, but so besprinkled throughout with the yellow buttercup, the white daisy, the purple violet, and the ruby-red asphodel, that its exceeding beauty spoke to our hearts in loud tones of the love and of the glory of God. And here and there in groves about this grass, like wildernesses of dreams, sprang up fantastic trees, whose tall, slender stems stood not upright, but slanted gracefully toward the light that peered at noonday into the center of the valley. Their mark was speckled with a vivid, alternate splendor of ebony and silver, and was smoother than all save the cheeks of Eleonora, so that, but for the brilliant green of the huge leaves that spread from their summits in long, tremulous lines, dallying with the zephyrs, one might have fancied them giant serpents of Syria doing homage to their sovereign, the sun. Hand in hand about this valley for fifteen years roamed I with Eleonora before love entered within our hearts. 
It was one evening at the close of the third lustrum of her life, and of the fourth of my own, that we sat, locked in each other's embrace, beneath the serpent-like trees, and looked down within the water of the river of silence at our images therein. We spoke no words during the rest of that sweet day, and our words, even upon the morrow, were tremulous and few. We had drawn the god Eros from that wave, and now we felt that he had enkindled within us the fiery souls of our forefathers. The passions which had for centuries distinguished our race came thronging with the fancies for which they had been equally noted, and together breathed a delirious bliss over the valley of the many-colored grass. A change fell upon all things. Strange, brilliant flowers, star-shaped, burn out upon the trees where no flowers had been known before. The tints of the green carpet deepened, and when one by one the white daisies shrank away, there sprang up in place of them ten by ten of the ruby-red asphodel, and life arose in our paths, for the tall flamingo, hitherto unseen with all gay glowing birds, flaunted his scarlet plumage before us. The golden and silver fish haunted the river, out of the bosom of which issued little by little a murmur that swelled at length into a lulling melody, more divine than that of the harp of Aeolus, sweeter than all save the voice of Eleonora. And now, too, a voluminous cloud which we had long watched in the regions of Hesper floated out thence, all gorgeous and crimson and gold, and settling in peace above us, sank day by day lower and lower, until its edges rested upon the tops of the mountains, turning all their dimness into magnificence, and shutting us up as if forever within a magic prison-house of grandeur and of glory. The loveliness of Eleonora was that of the seraphim, but she was a maiden artless and innocent as the brief life she had led among the flowers. No guile disguised the fervor of love which animated her heart, and she examined with me its inmost recesses as we walked together in the valley of the many-colored grass, and discoursed of the mighty changes which had lately taken place therein. At length, having spoken one day in tears of the last sad change which must befall humanity, she thenceforward dwelt only upon this one sorrowful theme, interweaving it into all our converse, as in the songs of the Bard of Shiraz the same images are found occurring again and again in every impressive variation of phrase. She had seen that the finger of death was upon her bosom, that, like the ephemeron, she had been made perfect in loveliness only to die, but the terrors of the grave to her lay solely in a consideration which she revealed to me one evening at twilight by the banks of the river of silence. She grieved to think that, having entombed her in the valley of the many-colored grass, I would quit forever its happy recesses, transferring the love which now was so passionately her own, to some maiden of the outer and everyday world. And then and there I threw myself hurriedly at the feet of Eleonora, and offered up a vow to herself and to heaven that I would never bind myself in marriage to any daughter of earth, that I would in no manner prove recreant to her dear memory, or to the memory of the devout affection with which she had blessed me. And I called the mighty ruler of the universe to witness the pious solemnity of my vow, and the curse which I invoked of him and of her, 
a saint in Helusian, should I prove traitorous to that promise, involved a penalty, the exceeding great horror of which will not permit me to make record of it here. And the bright eyes of Eleonora grew brighter at my words, and she sighed as if a deadly burthen had been taken from her breast, and she trembled and very bitterly wept. But she made acceptance of the vow, for what was she but a child, and it made easy to her the bed of her death. And she said to me, not many days afterward, tranquilly dying, that because of what I had done for the comfort of her spirit, she would watch over me in that spirit when departed, and if so, it were permitted her return to me visibly in the watches of the night. But if this thing were indeed beyond the power of the souls in paradise, that she would at least give me frequent indications of her presence, sighing upon me in the evening winds, or filling the air which I breathed with perfume from the censers of the angels. And with these words upon her lips, she yielded up her innocent life, putting an end to the first epoch of my own. Thus far I have faithfully said, but as I pass the barrier in time's path formed by the death of my beloved, and proceed with the second era of my existence, I feel that a shadow gathers over my brain, and I mistrust the perfect sanity of the record. But let me on. Years dragged themselves along heavily, and still I dwelled within the valley of the many-colored grass. But a second change had come upon all things. The star-shaped flowers shrank into the stems of the trees and appeared no more. The tints of the green carpet faded, and one by one the ruby-red asphodels withered away, and there sprang up, in place of them, ten by ten, dark eye-like violets that writhed uneasily and were ever encumbered with dew. And life departed from our paths, for the tall flamingo flaunted no longer his scarlet plumage before us but flew sadly from the vale into the hills with all the gay glowing birds that had arrived in his company. And the golden and silver fish swam down through the gorge at the lower end of our domain and bedecked the sweet river never again. And the lulling melody that had been softer than the wind-harp of Aeolus and more divine than all save the voice of Eleonora, it died little by little away in murmurs growing lower and lower until the stream returned, at length, utterly into the solemnity of its original silence. And then, lastly, the voluminous cloud uprose, and abandoning the tops of the mountains to the dimness of old, fell back into the regions of Hesper, and took away all its manifold golden and gorgeous glories from the valley of the many-colored grass. Yet the promises of Eleonora were not forgotten, for I heard the sounds of the swinging of the censers of the angels, and streams of a holy perfume floated ever and ever about the valley, and at lone hours when my heart beat heavily, the winds that bathed my brow came unto me laden with soft sighs, and indistinct murmurs filled off on the night air, and once, oh, but once only, I was awakened from a slumber, like the slumber of death by the pressing of spiritual lips upon my own. But the void within my heart refused even thus to be filled. I longed for the love which had before filled it to overflowing. At length the valley pained me through its memories of Eleonora, and I left it forever for the vanities and the turbulent triumphs of the world. 
I found myself within a strange city, where all things might have served to blot from recollection the sweet dreams I had dreamed so long in the valley of the many-colored grass, the pomps and pageantries of a stately court, and the mad clangor of arms, and the radiant loveliness of women bewildered and intoxicated my brain. But as yet my soul had proved true to its vows and the indications of the presence of Eleonora were still given me in the silent hours of the night. Suddenly these manifestations they ceased, and the world grew dark before mine eyes, and I stood aghast at the burning thoughts which possessed, at the terrible temptations which beset me, for there came from far, far distant and unknown land, into the gay court of the king I served, a maiden to whose beauty my whole recreant heart yielded at once, at whose footstool I bowed down without a struggle in the most ardent and the most abject worship of love. What indeed was my passion for the young girl of the valley in comparison with the fervor and the delirium and the spirit-lifting ecstasy of adoration with which I poured out my whole soul in tears at the feet of the ethereal Ermengarde, Oh, bright was the seraph Ermengarde, and in that knowledge I had room for none other. Oh, divine was the angel Ermengarde, and as I looked down into the depths of her memorial eyes, I thought only of them and of her. I wedded, nor dreaded the curse I had invoked, and its bitterness was not visited upon me, and once but once again in the silence of the night there came through my lattice the soft sighs which had forsaken me, and they modeled themselves into familiar and sweet voice, saying, Sleep in peace, for the spirit of love reigneth and ruleth, and in taking to thy passionate heart her who is Ermengarde, thou art absolved, for reasons which shall be made known to thee in heaven, of thy vows unto Eleonora. End of Eleonora End of the Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 2